The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by the Pike Restaurant and Bar, located in the heart of Retro Row in Long Beach, California. The Pike is the official local hangout spot of the Bottom Dwellers. Chris Reese, owner and former Social D drummer, has created a kick-ass nautical-themed, diver-friendly bar that offers great food, great drinks, and live music. That's the Pike Restaurant and Bar in Long Beach, California. Find them on Instagram at Pike Bar or visit their website, pikelongbeach.com. This episode is brought to you by Ocean Eye Inc. Ocean Eye's main focus is you, the commercial diver. With industry leading end to end service and expertise, they got everything you need for your next dive job. You need your gear maintenance or repaired? Need some new products or consulting? Ocean Eye's got you covered. Give them a call at 610-621-5750 or visit them online at OceanEyeInc.com. All right, this is a Bottom Dollars Dive Shack back again for Season 2, Episode 1. have a real special episode for you guys. I'm joined by uh, Johnny and uh, Chris. How you doing, everyone? What's happening? What's happening, everybody? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking day. with... Uh, ADCI Executive Director Phil Newsom and uh, Eric Campert, which is a uh, OSHA Maritime Director. So it's going to be a great episode, super informative. We're going to keep it lively. We're going to ask the tough questions, and we're also going to get you know down to the nitty gritty as far as uh, Delta P is concerned. So really excited about this episode. It's going to be an important one for our industry. And without much further ado, let's let these guys into the dive shack. Yeah, let's let them in. Hey guys. What hey, how's it going, happening? Phil? Hi, Phil. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. <laughs> hey, everyone. Hey, oh, we got the international component. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm a new addition. I'm a new. I'm a, I'm a new boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard that on the uh, on the intro. That's uh, that's pretty exciting. Wow, it's uh, it's quite an honor to meet you. No, not at all. The honor's the honor's absolutely all mine. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for the boys for letting me come along and uh, contribute a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, be looking forward to hearing what you uh, you got to say. So this is me kind too. of one of our steps in trying to just unite, 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 unite this whole dive industry. You know, get some input from uh, other divers from around the world and stuff. And Chris has been uh, gracious enough to to be able to uh, join the team and uh, be one of our co-hosts. Which uh, you know, thanks to him and thanks to you guys for uh, coming on for our first episode of season two. Thank you, Phil. And thank you, Eric. You bet. Happy to be here. Indeed. So, again, for a lot of people that listen to us, we are listened, you know, to worldwide. Um, yes. A lot of them don't know what OSHA is. So, Johnny, can you give us a brief history and basic overview of OSHA? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote some. I wrote it down here. So, Eric, if you if I say anything stupid, you can immediately interrupt me and say, "Why not long?" What I <laughs> what I have here is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That, we know it as OSHA. It's a large regulatory agency established uh, by the Congress under uh, the Occupational Self Safety Health Act, signed into law by President Nixon in the 70s. Right? I'm not a um, Yeah. Your guy's mission is uh, to assure safe and healthy working conditions for working men 
and women by setting and enforcing standards and by providing training, outreach, education, and assistance. Am I wrong there? That sounds that sounds pretty good. That's probably better than I could. Huh? Yeah. Awesome. So what we really want to know is Eric Camper, Director of Office of Maritime Enforcement, just a little bit of background. And then um, besides implementing controls, procedures, and training, can you dive more into the Office of Maritime Enforcement and what it's all about? Boy, we're getting into serious stuff first. I thought I thought we were going to talk about. Don't we talk about what kind of, what kind of beer, beers you're having? <laughs> you wanted to dive point. right into the beers, huh? <laughs> yeah. See, we we didn't know how yeah. professional we had to be with this, you know. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, everyone relax. So I got a uh, a local. I don't know if you can see with my. It's a Manor Hill uh, double IPA. Manor Hill's a local. Uh, Local brewery here that I frequent in Ellicott City, and uh, every Tuesday I go on a beer run with them. You get a free beer, and uh, so anyway, that's what that's what I'm drinking. How about you guys? Nice. You know, I'm really glad that you're not a square, Eric. Johnny yeah. over here is like a nerd and just read all this stuff. Well, because I was very, I'm trying to be as professional as possible. But now, now that that's out of the way, <laughs> I have this delicious Bud Light Chilada. It's my breakfast time, so. Yeah, it's breakfast over here. You know, and then I have a bunch of Millers on standby. Yeah. That's good. It's I, I, like I got the same thing. Get a little healthy in, in there with the chalada. Yeah, yeah. 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 Gotta that's go that's and get your vegetables. Yeah. That's that yeah. Southern California treat. Yeah. 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 Is that even a beer, Bud Light? Does that count as a beer? <laughs> I mean, a watery beer, yeah. But if you drink <laughs> enough of them. It's got Chris is minding his P's and Q's over there. It's got malt in there. Oh, well, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, you know, I'm. In, I'm English, obviously, but I live in Scotland, so I've got. I'm, I've skipped. I've skipped the beer altogether, and I'm. I'm straight onto the the, uh, the Jura malt because I'm. Uh, I live pretty close to to, to Jura. Um, yeah, and I'm occasionally I pretend to be a Scotsman. So yeah, it's like eight o'clock at night. I've got it's eight o'clock here, so I've got an excuse, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, um, so like I said, we're we're just you know just trying to to get over the basic you know what OSHA is. You know, that's, yeah, that's some the, of our followers might not know what OSHA yeah. is at all. That's kind of why yeah. we want to just touch on that. Yeah, no, that's fine. So just like the the whole org chart, so um, OSHA is part of DOL, which is the Department of Labor. So you got Department of Labor, uh, and then OSHA falls under that, the safety and health side um, under Department of Labor. Then breaking it down within OSHA, I work in DEP, which is the Director of Enforcement Programs, which is the enforcement side of, of OSHA. You know, there's like rulemaking side, enforcement side. So I'm in the enforcement side. And then within that section, I'm in the uh, Office of Maritime Enforcement. And the Office of Maritime Enforcement kind of takes um, maritime in OSHA speak is typically shipyards, shipbuilding, ship repair, ship scrapping. Marine terminals, longshoring, and we also do diving and just kind of general water-related stuff. So that's kind of like what my office does, and and, and I'm the director there. So um, that's pretty much it. And then um, in some of these questions here, you asked just overall background. I'll just dive into that if that's all right. All right. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, so, hello, Steeler Nation out there, whoever is listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, born, born and raised in, in, in Pittsburgh. Um, I went to the Coast Guard Academy, uh, studied civil engineering there. Uh, after the academy, I spent 
five years in the Coast Guard, two years on a ship, three years in the shipyard. After that, I got out of the service and uh, worked in the private industry for a while. Started with an engineering firm, design firm. And that's kind of where I first started diving, uh, doing underwater inspections, uh, a, a lot like you, Armando, and, and, and Dave. A lot of scuba in, in, that, um, in that job. Uh, I went over to the contractor side for a little while, did uh, a lot of marine construction, a lot of pile driving. I got a master's at Maryland in uh, geotechnical engineering, so I like pounding stuff into dirt, right? Um, uh, foundations and stuff. Missed the diving. Went back to uh, another firm to do diving, and that's where I got more OJT and did some actual um, surface applied training. Um, I went up to uh, Canada, uh, the commercial diving uh, college with Hal Lomax up there in Canada. Nice. Um, he taught me up there, so uh, he was great. And then, uh, you know, did more underwater inspections w- with them. Finally found my way to OSHA. I was at an ADCI uh, conference uh, at, at a dinner there. And Steve Butler tells a great story. Steve Butler is the person I, I met there. He was the office director where I'm at now. Uh, so I ran into him and he was a Naval Academy grad. And I was Coast Guard. So we were just chatting. He was like, hey, do you ever want to work for OSHA? And I was like, yeah, it might be interesting. So yada, yada. I worked for uh, Office of Maritime, came to OSHA. Uh, then spent, I, I did a couple of things in OSHA. I went over to emergency management, did some deep water horizon stuff. I went over to construction since I was a civil engineer. Was an office director over there. And then uh, Steve finally retired and I got to come back to Maritime, my, my love um, back home in the, in, in, around the water. So, um, you know, really happy to be here. I've uh, been back in the office for the last about three years. Um, but uh, that's kind of a quick background. And Armando, like you, um, I was very thrilled to be featured in ADCI magazine earlier in 2001. Uh, the last word, you know, I was like, wow, this is like, I felt like I made it to the top. Right. You know? um, and so I, I, I know you just had your guys article, mm-hmm. which was, which was really cool. Um, and uh, what's interesting in that article back then, uh, one of the questions was what keeps you up at night? And my answer was Delta P because at that point, differential pressure at that point, there was like three fatalities in a real short period of time. Lo and behold, here we are a little bit later and there's been more. And so like, anyway, so that's a little diatribe about myself and, you know, kind of where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're going to kind of get into the, the Delta P yeah. in a little bit too. I know uh, I had another question. This, this might be a little bit for, uh, for Phil there. Um, uh, Actually, uh, did did you want to touch on something, Chris? I I know you had mentioned uh, before that you wanted to kind of compare a little bit. Yeah, it's just um, just interesting to hear. Uh, you know, we have different, slightly different things over here in the UK, but there's a, there's a great deal of similarity. We have the what we call the Health and Safety Executive over here, which is I think the equivalent of the OHSA. So I was going to touch upon that later on, really, in terms of the you know where the power lies, if you like. But um, I, one thing I was curious about really was just when. When did sort of diving standards come about in the US? You know, um, here in the UK, it was sort of really in the 70s that we started to develop those things. Mostly when the, when you uh, you uh, you Americans came across and started running the North Sea and, and putting the putting the platforms in for us, really. 
Um, and, you know, there were a lot of fatalities then and, and the HEC came in and started developing um, diving, the diving regulations at work, tax and things like that. So I'm just curious as to when, when that sort of thing started in the US. I'll take this again and uh, Phil can hopefully clean up Hitter at the, at the end of this stuff. Um, so a long time ago. So like, um, like you guys said, OSHA started in 1970. In 1975, uh, the the Carpenter Union, uh, the Brotherhood of uh, the AFL-CIO, they basically said, hey, OSHA, we, we need a diving standard. So in 1976, uh, they did an emergency temporary standard, which is kind of interesting. So I, I'm not sure if you guys have been keeping up with the whole uh, OSHA vaccination and the emergency ter- temporary standard. That just got shut down by the uh, Supreme Court, right? Um, so emergency temporary standards is something that OSHA can do, right? And obviously it didn't work out this time for, for OSHA, but it started back in 1976 with the diving standards. So they put it out in the June of 1976. Then in November 1976, they did a proposed rule. The following summer, 1977, the final rule came out. And that's kind of the standard that we have today, with with a few exceptions, like the medical requirements were yanked in 1979. I know ADCI still has them in in their standards. Uh, In 1982, there was a scientific diving exemption. Uh, 2004, we added an Appendix C, which is an exemption for recreational diving instructors and stuff. But yeah, it's pretty much like 45 years old. So... (laughs) Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We we work off the sort of diving diving at work regulations ninety seven, so we're probably maybe slightly late comers to that kind of thing, you know. Um, so yeah, it's great to hear that it was there. But they're uh, but they're newer yeah. and probably better. Or... Well, they're different. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're similar to you. We have um, that's that's what I was curious about, really, because we have the you know the, we're led by the HSE in this country, which is the equivalent of the OHSA, uh, and it's it's there's some legislation and some of it are what we called uh, approved codes of practices, which for us introduces a bit of a grey area to a lot of things. Um, I don't know if that's the same with you guys, and we're similar. We have very uh, very strict rules, really, for offshore offshore work. You know, very it's very very stringent. But when you move inshore, a lot more grey areas. And with us, we're very similar to you. We have um, a different set of rules for archaeological diving, for scientific diving, for uh, diving in fish farms and things like that. And um, that's something we're really trying to address here in the UK and, and in Europe in general. Really, is is to try and marry those standards up a little bit because um, you know the accidents and fatalities we have over here tend to be inshore and in those industries where those the the standards aren't quite as, as exacting if that if that reflects well, at all. that's interesting and you know that's i kind of like that better ours is kind of one size fit all you know yeah. i mean if you're diving in a pool patching up you know the bottom of a pool commercial diving if you're diving you know five you know offshore oil rigs it, it's still the same standard so yeah that that can be good. good yeah I mean, it should be obviously. You know, you've got human beings in both cases, haven't you? So, you know, that's the that's the most important thing in the day. The well, standards really shouldn't yeah. be. I don't think there should be exceptions. You know, because of the nature of the work or the prices involved. You know, true. Yeah, good point. So, as as far as the differences between uh, ADCI and OSHA, what are some of the big ones there, Phil? Well, I think the big one is is that um, we're we're not regulatory, and what we put out. Um, 
is, you know, considered industry best safe practice by really by both OSHA and and uh, the Coast Guard. But, you know, it, it's not law. So what we what we put out are um, and we have the luxury of being able to update things because it's not law. That's probably the, the biggest handicap that a regulator has is that they can't be very real time with making adjustments to uh, industry growth and industry changes. Now, I do know that, uh, and, and Eric, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that uh, both the regulators, OSHA and the Coast Guard can do is put something out like in, in the form of a policy letter. And I'll just use the Coast Guard as an example. If they need to push something out and they want to change, but they don't want to change the law per se, um, something like a policy letter can be issued. But with respect to us, if we run across something, and, and I'll just use this, this the Delta P task force and what's coming out of that task force from a deliverable standpoint, we immediately can turn around and put that in the consensus standards. And now that's recommended practice um, with, with respect to the ADCI. And we're able to push things out to industry a lot faster because we're not a regulator. Um, so I, I would say that's probably the biggest difference. Um, but I would also say too, that even though we're not a regulator, we have the capability of policing our membership. So if you don't abide by what's in the consensus standards, um, we can go ahead and make a move on you in that regard. We can either suspend you or if it's egregious enough, uh, terminate your membership. You say, okay, well, big deal. Well, it kind of is, especially if you're, you know, the end user or client that you're working for mandates um, membership, say within ADCI or, or, or in IMCA and other parts of the world. So, yeah, I just, just, I just think of what you're saying, NFL makes complete sense to me. For me, everything in, in all these cases is often client driven, isn't it? If, if the client has, if the clients have integrity uh, and they uh, have respect for, you know, the, the, the work that you're doing, then they, you know, if somebody is struck off, we have, we have the ADC here in the UK for inshore guys. And, you know, it's very similar, really. You know, if somebody struck off that list, then, you know, as long as clients take a notice of that, then it's a very effective um, method of doing things, isn't it? So that was, that was just what I was going to say, really, how, how, how effective do you find that that is in terms of policing, as, as you say, rules you can bring in quickly, which is fantastic. Um, it it, it really is. I, I think at one time, you know, it used to be the focus of associations to have these large numbers of members. And that really spoke to the power and the importance of, of, of an association. Um, and I think in very short order, folks realize that that isn't the case. Your credibility comes in you being able to... Um, you know, is your, is your bite anywhere near as big as your bark? And so if, if you adopt a, a policy like that, you have to be prepared for a lot of folks to, to drop off and to be able to say, hey, look, you either meet the standard or unfortunately you can't be a member of this. Because what it does is it just simply compromises the credibility of all of the other members. And it really doesn't give an end user 
or a client much confidence in who it is that, uh, so if I get on the phone and I, I get a call from ExxonMobil and they ask me about a contractor in this part of, of the US, um, do we have somebody that we can recommend? That person that I'm interfacing with, with ExxonMobil, that's huge to me when I deal with, with clients. So even if it is an ADCI member company, if I know for a fact that they're not going to be able to measure up to what those expectations are, uh, not just for ADCI, but, but for that particular client, I'm not going to recommend them. Um, it's more important to us as an association to have the overall credibility of the association remain intact, even if it comes at the expense of a contractor or two. Um, and so that, that, that's kind of our philosophy uh, in terms of, of why we feel like we need to hold our own accountable. Quality over quantity, right? Absolutely. And, you know, what, what I've always said is, is that I'll take 300 good contractors from all over the world and that I know I can count on on any given day. I'm not going to get a call about somebody, uh, you know, some, some massive accident or God forbid a fatality as opposed to having 600 where at any minute I could, you know, find out that, that there's a problem because I've got a bunch of folks that are, you know, got one foot in the grave from an operational standpoint. They're just not looking at any lessons learned. They're not adhering to any standards, whether that be regulatory or uh, what's in the consensus standards. And that, that's been our philosophy. And, you know, we, we don't want our revenue and sustainability of the association to be based upon numbers, sheer numbers of members. Right. So, so these non-member companies, they're, 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 um, they're not diving under ADCI standards unless they're required to by the client, which a lot of times if the client requires that they dive by ADCI standards, they're probably going to have a requirement of membership. But that being said, I've worked on jobs that weren't uh, ADCI member companies, and they always told us, hey, we don't dive by ADCI, we dive by OSHA. And they would tell us that because OSHA was usually a little bit more vague, you know, and they go by industry standards, which is kind of confusing because everyone can kind of agree that ADCI is pretty much the industry standard. But I, I mean, what's the, what's the definition of industry standards? You know, let's go ahead and get into that. Well, so our standards really were set up, um, they're, they're consensus standards. And what we do is we pull industry in terms of looking at what is it that we're putting out there? Is it good enough? Does it meet muster of what needs to be done to conduct a safe diving operation? Um, they're not pie in the sky standards. We, we look at our standards as a minimum. If somebody wants to take it a step further, they can, but we've identified the standards that are in our consensus standards as being operational and equipment minimums uh, with room to exceed that. So we're not looking to set a bar at something that is unrealistic for whether it be a small contractor or a large contractor. And then, of course, if the client wants more, then obviously they'll they'll pay for that, you know, in 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 the bid, in in the contract. 
What I wanted to point out, though, is what really makes, I think, ADCI, that interface between ADCI and OSHA is the directive. So if you look at this OSHA instruction that I have in front of me from June 2011, everybody on here um, has, has, has probably seen it. Chris, maybe not so much, but um, in the appendix in here, you know, OSHA just flat out goes ahead and says um, that they consider, they, they recognize the ADCI consensus standards for commercial diving and underwater operations as meeting the general requirements of 29 CFR uh, for a safe practices manual. And uh, the contents of this document meet or exceed the requirements of 29 CFR. And finally, for diving related operational maintenance and testing matters that are not addressed by OSHA standards, OSHA recognizes ADCI standards as the best established industry practice. So, you know, the directive kind of ties that in. So it says, well, where are the ADCI standards fall in relation to, uh, you know, OSHA standards? I think the instruction and in, in the directive ties that in and lets you know what OSHA's position is with respect to the ADCI consensus standards. So this, this is interesting. And you can tell, you know, we didn't rehearse this because, um, I mean, we talked about... Um, uh, the directive, and we do have that in a directive, and we added that for a specific reason because we do believe that. But Phil said that ADCI is the low bar. I, I honestly think OSHA is is the low bar. We're the minimum standard, and and you probably have to go. And so it's funny that Phil says the ADCI is, um, because I I think in general there's probably a little bit more in there. There's just more detail. Um, right. but and that's the big thing. The big complaint is the lack of detail in the OSHA standard. You know, a lot of divers well, consider it kind of vague and it's not as far reaching as it should be. I think, Chris, you mentioned that a little bit too, right? Some of these. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. Yeah, it was just, I was interested talking to you before we came on air, really, in terms of where the standards lie or where the buck stops, if you like. You know, we we uh, here in the yeah. UK, as, as you said, we have the HSC, which is uh, the equivalent of OSHA, and they are very much the legislative body, and they are the the highest standard definitely here in the in the UK. They're the ones who can you know really drag you into court and uh, and pull you up on everything. Um, much of what our equivalent of the ADCI, the ADC, brings out us, uh, you know. Uh, very similar, really, in terms of they are uh, an associative body that you need to be a member of, um, and you know companies will only really get you know tender for work uh, successfully by being a member and adhering to their standards. But when it comes to actual legislation, it's it's very much the HSE that drives that and, and sets the sets the bar. Yeah, so I was I was asking you before really where you think that bar is. You know, in the US, is it is it with the associations or is it you know with the federal government effectively? Yeah. So just, just to kind of piggyback on, on that, so even as OSHA has that piece about ADCI and, and ADCI standards in their uh, instruction, in their directive, what the Coast Guard has done, because they're, they're kind of, and, and we don't have a representative of the Coast Guard here, but I, I'm comfortable in saying this, so they, they also are dealing with the same thing and having regulations really that were put out in the late 70s um, that have had some minor tweaks in the 90s, but really does not fit 
what today's demands are from an offshore standpoint or operating in the outer continental shelf or really anywhere in Coast Guard jurisdiction for that matter. So what they did was um, with the efforts of both ADCI and, and IMCA, we got together with the Coast Guard and they issued a policy letter which would allow for the use of ADCI consensus standards as well as MPD documents um, in conjunction with uh, 46 CFR part 197 um, subpart B. And so you're, you're seeing a lot of that in the US because it's it's been a Herculean task to try and get any new legislation passed, especially anything that's related to commercial diving because there are other priorities that folks on, on Capitol Hill have outside of commercial diving. So we've come up with some of these workarounds, one of which is that policy letter that the Coast Guard issued so that there are documents out there that take into account saturation diving, which is not even touched upon in uh, you know the current CFR with the Coast Guard. So um, anyway, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to go into the weeds too much there, guys. But uh, we're we're dealing with similar issues with both of our regulators and uh, on some level. So Armando, you're saying you know that they're they're vague and um, uh, are, are they too are they too short or are they, you know not detailed enough or. I think it's a detail. What's the complaint out there? I think I think the most common complaint is a, is, is a it's a detail, you know. So, um, I mean, if there was something written in the standard, well, yeah, I really don't know how you fix that because you don't want a thousand page, you know, OSHA document, do you? Well, that's what that's what I. Be careful what you ask for, you know, because if you open mm -hmm. up the rule again, you don't know what you're going to get, and I feel what we have out there. If you're following the minimum stuff that we're doing and probably build on that, you're probably going to be all right. In, in my, in my, I mean, we, every time there's a fatality or whatever, we, we find something wrong. You know, there's rarely a situation where there's, there's, there's nothing wrong. And um, think about when you used to build houses back in, uh, you know, hundred years ago, your, your, your plans would be like maybe three sheets. Right. You know, you'd have like an overall plan, you know, you build a house. Now there's like 20 sheets. It gets so complicated. You know, I, I feel like if we would do that with the, uh, with the diving rule, it, it might just get super complicated. And one of the big things though, as far as OSHA is concerned is uh, scuba companies being able to do commercial work. You know, um, that's one of the huge complaints that, you know, that we'll constantly find, you know, you have this rinky dink scuba company. That's like you said, they'll go out there and, you know, maybe they're doing pools one minute, but then a client will ask them, hey, let's uh, let's extend this dock and do some pile driving. Mm -hmm. They'll get that scuba company out there to do some of that, that dock work and pile driving work, you know, which should be on commercial divers. I agree with you. And I'm, I, I'm happy you bring that up because in, in our research and looking at statistics and fatalities over here, scuba is a big problem. And that's just something we just got to, you know, beat into the heads of clients and, and divers. I mean, the problem with it, it's low cost, low entry to, to get in. And um, you see that in, in a lot of industries, you know, uh, logging industries, um, you know, all you need is a chainsaw and a pickup truck, uh, right. you know, 
So, and then and part of it too is that I'm just mortified sometimes when I see, you know, pictures on Instagram about these dudes doing uh doing welding and burning on on scuba. Yeah, you know, they're doing chainsawing and demolition work. You know, and yeah. now given some of these are military guys, and and you know there is a place for it. You know, if you're gonna send a send a frogman to go blow up something, you know, he's gonna do it on scuba. He ain't gonna do it on service supplied. You know, so, but we're talking for commercial work, you know, construction work. Um, yeah. There's no place for scuba in construction work. I mean, that's well, my belief, 100%. And that's where I hope that what Chris was talking about, I, I don't know how their standards are set up, but different levels, um, I, I, I could see that being a benefit. Yeah, you only need scuba for repairing pools. You don't need <laughs> a decompression oh. chamber and everything set up, but... Yeah, you, you know, we have, you know, we have very similar problems here in the UK, really. You know, uh, scuba was outlawed offshore, you know, many years ago, but we're similar, really, Armando, in terms of the the, the regulations that we have inshore, which are are, are led by the uh, the HSC, but they're what we call approved codes of practices. So they're not really laws; they're really a standards which companies are expected to adhere to. Um, and if they deviate from those, and there's a, an accident or a fatality, then they would need to be able to explain in court, you know, um, why why they decided to deviate from those standards. But that leaves grey areas. So I'll give you an example, and scuba is a good one. So we we I live up on the west coast of Scotland, where we have a lot of uh, salmon farming and, and divers going into cages, you know, clearing out uh, morts and things like that. They do that on scuba all the time, and um, you know. We all understand why they do it because it's cheaper, it's easier. You know, the divers prefer it because they can drop in and out of cages without having to run hoses and things like that. Nevertheless, people die doing that, you know. Um, and there's, you know, the, I think the approved code of practice for that in particular, uh, which doesn't fall under commercial diving specifically, is that there's a very specific one for that kind of diving. Read something on the lines of, you know, scuba should never be used unless the water is lovely and clear and there is no danger of entrapment. Okay, so that that feels like you know uh, without swearing here, yeah, it feels like a bit of ass covering to me. You know, it's one of those that it's it's a regulatory body that's saying we disapprove of it, but we're not actually going to outlaw it. You know what I mean? Um, which I think is a dangerous area, and I, I, you know, sounds like that you have some similar problems over there. Really, that you know, you introduce a grey area to companies, and they are going to they're going to take it. You know, and the, you know, it has to be. That's why I come back to the point I made earlier on. It has to be client for me. It has to be client driven. It's very hard. Very hard for the HSC to regulate that here in the UK because if they just to say, if they were just to say right everyone has to and I'm sure you have similar problems Eric and, and um, you know in that if you just to say right well you can't you have to use surface applied for any any commercial diving operation you're going to put a lot of companies out of business first of all straight away a lot of divers out of business you're going to make cheap operations very expensive and prohibitively so and it's going to go under the radar and things like that. It's difficult, you know, it's, it has to be a gradual thing. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you've always got to come back to what price, you know, what price the life and what price, you know, putting divers, exposing divers to dangerous to dangerous situations. So you're right. You know, Educate I, next well, I totally appreciate why, why these things happen. For me, you know, I, I do agree that eventually these things have to be more, more black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oh. Sorry. Now, one of the, no, that's, that's great, man. Like I said, that, that's why we're doing this because these are, you know, comments and questions that, that, you know, divers out there have that we're echoing and then we're bringing up these subjects and we're just trying to clarify this, you know, um, OSHA is not this big, you know, 
big secret organization up there, you know, doing their thing and stuff like that. No, it's Eric Camper here having a beer with us. You know, it's the guy that cares also, about divers. He's a diver himself. You know? I was going to say that, Armando. The, the bottom line is everybody's everybody wants the same thing. You know, everybody wants it to be safe, and everybody nobody's nobody sat here. He doesn't want divers to come home safe every night. You know, it's just it, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's not it's not as straightforward as you know divers often assume. Just to, you know, put some bang some laws in and 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 make it draconian. It's not always quite that straightforward forward is it but that, that's what we all need to aspire to and just find a way to to get there together i guess yeah mm-hmm. yeah which is what some people think they think that you know why is it so difficult not to you know outlaw this or that or do this and that. do you know how long it takes to pass regulation you know long it takes yeah. to legislate you know yeah. um it, it takes takes a long time it takes forever um, but yeah. one of the things that you guys are doing right now is uh, addressing delta p so kind of wanted to get into the uh, Delta P. What is Delta P? Um, that's differential pressure. And uh, Phil, ADCI put a great video out there that's been out there for many, many years that's shown at every dive school. But we're still having problems with it. There's still people that don't know about it. There's a, there's even safety directors that don't know that certain jobs are Delta P jobs, you know, and there's uh, it's really discomforting. So maybe you can give us a broad little definition of what Delta P is and then where we might encounter it. Ah, just really very simply, you know, the difference in pressure between any two points in an open or closed system, which can result in fluid flow, creating a hazard for a diver. I mean, that's, that's really it. It's, it's not any highbrow definition at all. Um, and to to that point, you know, we've we've gone ahead since the, the creation of the ADCI oh, OSHA yeah, Delta, Delta P Task Force. Can can you guys hear me? All right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, okay. I had a little audio difficulty there. Oh, all right. Donnie no, no, was no, no worries. If I wanted another beer, and I was trying to tell him no, I'm okay. <laughs> right in the middle of this serious Delta P. Well, that's the important thing. <laughs> oh. Well, I wish I could join you guys. I can't because I'm in the yeah, office. You're the I only just, one still working. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. I got off of, of, of our board meeting and jumped right on to uh, our Zoom meeting. But yet, getting back to this, the, the task force, um, you know, what we've come to find is, and we talked about this with client awareness and client education. I mean, the quickest way to remedy something is to find out who's the money and then have them get on board and institute the policy, educate them on what safe practices are and how to vet the folks that are performing your diving services. That's gonna have the greatest impact in terms of making a change, putting a dent in uh, fatalities. So one of the ways in which we're doing this as a task force is to really look at facility operators. And it's, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. But for me, and I've had this conversation with Eric before and, and many of the task force members, but for me, where the real rubber hits the road and where we're going to get the most mileage towards stemming the tide of these fatalities is educating that facility operator and, and dealing with the clients so that they can kind of stop folks at the door and say, hey, where's your risk assessment? Where's your job hazard analysis? Where's your safety management system? Where are all of your, um, you know, let me see who your divers are. Let me see your equipment logs. 
Uh, what's your plan for the retrieval of an unconscious or injured diver? Some not pie in the sky questions, some very basic questions that really there's a huge gap with when we start looking at the power generating facilities here in the United States and also outside of the United States as well. I found that out when I was in Norway here this past November, but that's our charge. And for me, I think the most in ways that we are gonna make are with the client. And then of course, in conjunction with that, we know that there are a lot of contractors out there, um, you know, mostly non-ADCI members that are doing some of this work for these facilities that don't do their due diligence from a lockout tag out standpoint, that don't um, establish barriers or do a thorough risk assessment or job hazard analysis, um, that don't know anything about domain awareness or capture zones or direct line of fire, or even know the definition of Delta P. And so we, we can't just focus on the clients We've got to build our approach to also be more comprehensive, looking at that non-ADCI member that uh, is also looking to perform work at these facilities, as well as our own members who have been doing work at these facilities for 20, 30 plus years and think they know exactly what it needs to look like only to come to find out that I did not know that, that's a good idea. Um, so the task force has really got a huge undertaking, uh, but for me, again, getting to that client has probably got to be priority 1A. I just, if I can just cut in, I, I, you know, I couldn't agree with more of everything you just said there, Phil. You know, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's education is, the, is a massive thing from every level, from the, from the client right down to the divers. I, I'm going to recount a story in a, in a second, just, you know, illustrating exactly that. But, um, you know, I'm sure we've all come across that thing in diving, haven't we, in, in contractual work where um, there's the problem we often have is that as soon as a, you know, a diver puts his hand underneath the surface, clients are sort of oblivious to what's going on. They can't see what's happening. They don't care what's happening. You know, it's not really their, you know, their responsibility. Um, so I would, you know, while I would completely second what you're saying, I also feel there needs to be a level of accountability with, with clients. Um, uh, so there's a little bit of a difference in the UK and Europe and UK. Um, as a client, you are pretty much equally as responsible for the, um, the safety of, of divers as a contractor. And from a legal standpoint, so what you might be, you might have no understanding of what's going on. Uh, you, nevertheless, you need to educate yourself because you are, you know, if something goes wrong, you are equally responsible. You're, exactly. Your facility is exposed. And, yeah. and you know, coming to that point with, with this, we are looking at, you know, as when Eric put together a summary of findings, uh, when, when OSHA put together a summary of findings, for these fatalities that have happened at these power generating facilities. He put the summary of findings, one for the facility operator, and then one for the contractors. And so, because, you know, obviously the, con the diving contractor from a diving standpoint, theoretically should be the subject matter expert. They should know how to perform the operation. They, at the end of the day, are responsible for keeping their people, uh, the welfare of their people intact uh, with the 
the laws that are written here in the US, the diving supervisor, the designated person in charge is responsible for the welfare of the dive team. And so for dive related stuff, yes, okay, we get that. But how about the dive contractor that goes in that takes, looks at the surveys of the plant and the surveys aren't accurate. And now we have a fatality because a diver walked into the, an unknown capture zone. Um, well, I would say that that facility's probably put their rear out in the wind quite a bit. And so when you start looking at this, obviously, yeah, you just no one entity is absolved of any responsibility. They both are. They may not get fined from a regulatory standpoint, but you can rest assured that when this thing goes to civil court, they're going to be coming after that facility operator. Um, yeah. and, and, and they, well, they what are. Chris, what Chris was saying too, and I want to hear this, Chris. So, um, so the government holds both uh, accountable because because we do too. Yeah. Good. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah, I was I was only asking because I didn't know. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, th- and I think that's vital. And I think Phil touched touched the you know mentioned a very important point. There is unfortunately you do have to follow the money a little bit because a lot of what you you know you're saying, which is completely correct, that you know dive supervisors and all the rest of it need to be entirely responsible for the people working for them. You are relying on people's integrity, um, which unfortunately. You know, we can't always do, can we? You know, um, there has to be accountability at a high level for me, and that has to come from a from a client. Um, because you know, if you if you leave that that area grey, if you allow clients just to be, uh, you know, or at least pretend to be naive to what's going on and uncaring of the standards on their work sites, uh, and just go with the lowest the lowest bidder, you know, the lowest you know lowest paying the lowest charging diving contractor, then you you know you're leaving yourself open to accidents, aren't you? So. I think it has to be, uh, I'm glad, I'm delighted to hear that, Eric. I, I was only asking because I wasn't sure, you know, whether well, I mean, it has to be and, accountability and, higher up. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to sort of shift the mindset that some clients have where, um, you know, they have this kind of simple outlook. So I, I use a case in point. I, I need some electrical work done at my home. I'm not an electrician. I bring an electrician. I expect the electrician to know the ins and outs of my the electrical box, the wiring, and everything else. I'm the layperson. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. I'm also expecting the uh, electrician to operate in a safe manner so he doesn't kill himself or any of his other uh, workmen or personnel. Yeah. Um, I think that's a reasonable expectation for me as the customer to have of the person that's performing the work. Unfortunately, that mindset doesn't necessarily translate into a larger scale. You're coming to work at this facility and everything else. The scale is the issue there. Yeah, and so a lot of it is educating uh, clients and end users that, no, it's not quite the same as that. You do need to get involved. You do need to understand exactly what is being done at your facility and how to ensure the safety of those folks so that you don't open yourself up for exposure. Same way if I've got homeowner's insurance if one of these guys slips and falls or or what have you. But I I think that mindset that a lot of um, clients have, at, at least 
in the, the inland sector, maybe not so much in the, the ONG and in the offshore sector, but in the inland sector is, is that just get the work done, call me when you're finished, and that's it. No oversight, no technical authority uh, yeah. on behalf of the client to oversee the operation. It's not, it's not even a case of asking, yeah, absolutely. It's not a case of asking the clients to be diving experts. It's a case, and it certainly doesn't absolve diving contractors of their duty of responsibility, but it's okay. asking clients to have a duty of care to at least uh, ask to be asking diving contractors about their safety record to be, you know, something that they can go into, walk into a courtroom and say, well, we did our part. We, we, we asked the right questions. We got the right documents. We checked they were a member of the ADCI, you know, so on and so forth. You know, they had some level of accountability, at least, which it sounds like you have. So, you know, that, that's great. And, and really the way in which you get their attention is you bring up the monetary exposure that they have because the facility has... God knows how many insurance plans to try and insulate them for whatever accident that takes place at that facility. The problem is, is that a civil court, at least here in the U.S., can name an award, whatever award they want, which in many instances it far exceeds what the insurance premiums are or, or policies have that these facilities have. So if you bring them up to speed and educate them on the fact that, yeah, this is actually just smart business move on your part to really get more involved in contractor selection and safety. Um, that gets their attention. Yeah. That, that gets their attention, um, especially when you tell them this, these standards are here. We brought this to your attention. You can't fall back on the fact that, well, we didn't know that. You do know. So now if you don't do anything about it and something happens, um, you're not going to be in a very good position. And so anyway. He's Elliot. He's Elliot. So I, I, I kind of want to just address the elephant in the room, you know, for us at least. Um, it's right over there, hanging on the wall. No, I'm just kidding. Stuff no, elephant in there as well, if you Yeah, they, they haven't had... You know, that was a bad <laughs> joke, right? There's a bobcat right behind us. But, <laughs> no, I'm... I'm no, our, our big story that we've been covering is obviously the uh, the tragedy at Mill Creek, you know, with the young diver that lost his life, you know. Um, I did have a, I, I still do have a source inside that plant and uh, the stuff that I was being told, you know, about the ins and outs of that plant was just, to me personally, was egregious. You know, first of all, there's no lockout, you know, obviously. It was just a tag out system and the dude told me that there's been several instances where people have flipped switches and, and electrocuted people, you know. Um, not to the point of death yet, but, um, you know, stuff like that was happening. Um, he was also telling me other stuff that, you know, um, that no one's been fired yet at that plant. Nobody's taken responsibility for any accident. You know, you have a diver that lost his life and they're still operating business as normal, as I've been told. They're still operating with a tag out only system and they're still just, you know, the same people there. So it's like, to me, that boggles my mind, you know, that nobody's being held accountable and no changes are being made. It's like, what the hell is going on in some of these power plants, you know? I mean, there's no question there. I guess that's just me ranting, isn't it? Well, I, I, I would tell you this and I'll, I'll, I'll stand down and let uh, Eric kind of speak to that. But 
What I do know with respect to that particular incident is that that investigation is still ongoing. So in order for you to see penalties or removal of folks or any of that, um, that might be forthcoming, but you, you can't really act until you've completed, thoroughly completed your, your investigation. I know from a civil side, which is now where people really get hurt from a financial standpoint, um, that, isn't, that, that hasn't happened yet. And I, I know that firsthand. So um, there's, there's still yet to be folks deposed and have things on record and a civil trial uh, in, in case take hold that that formally has not been put forth. And, and I know that firsthand. Um, but so some of these things will be addressed down the road. I know from a civil standpoint, they were, there's no way there's lawyers are chomping at the bit to, to get after this. Um, you know, whether it's to defend, you know, whether it's on behalf of the plaintiff or the defendants themselves from a regulatory standpoint, Eric, I better stand down and let you speak to that if you can. Um, Sorry. Well, yeah. So like even the, there are no citations that are final order yet. So we still can't really talk about the details of it, but uh, I really appreciate you guys uh, getting after this case and other ones in the future, because this is how, you know, we get the word out that this is not satisfactory and, and something needs to happen. Whatever that is, you know, uh, hopefully we can get some change in the industry so that, that this doesn't happen again. So I, I, I appreciate that. But as far as specifics, obviously we can't talk about it, but I, uh, I love it. And when this um, finishes up, I'd love to talk details about it, you know, whenever it, whenever it's done and, and we can all learn you know, from the right. lessons of this. So. But man, it's just so frustrating, you know, at the I time, know. you know, to the whole dive community yeah. that it's like these sons of bitches aren't being held accountable. You know, they freaking killed a diver. It's like, we want blood now and we want it. Well, we it, you know, that, that's just it. You want blood now. That's not to say that there won't be blood, but it, it, there's, there's a process that has to be followed. And I don't want to say, unfortunately, I'm going to say fortunately, because when you deviate from the process, you run the risk of maybe making certain assumptions that aren't necessarily true and not giving every, not really uh, doing your due diligence and, and affording due process and everything else. That if you were on whatever end of the fence you're on, um, you at some point in your life, you're going to appreciate things being process driven and, and, and following that process and not going from, you know, step A to step D. Yeah, you're done. Uh, that that's the end of that. Um, Just a quick quick question on that on that because you mentioned that Phil straight away that uh, there was you know um, we have to wait for the investigation to go on and nothing can be done until then. Do the OHSA? I'm probably question very clearly. Do you have the power to shut something down instantaneously? If there's, I only say that because I've had the misfortune to be involved with two big incidents with the HSE, one of which unfortunately was <laughs> made a film about. But they, in both cases, we were shut down immediately. Um, so we had, uh, after, you know, my sort of famed accident, we had three weeks where the HSE shut us down whilst the investigation was ongoing. Now that's in an offshore environment. I, I couldn't, 
I can't speak for what goes on inshore, to be honest, whether that same thing would count. But just interested to know if you do have that power to, to do that. We cannot shut down jobs unless there's imminent danger. And that's that's really kind of hard to, to claim. The, the only time where I, th- I think we've really done that is uh, think of an, an unprotected trench. Trenching is a very hazardous uh, yeah, we have a lot of fatalities and, and issues with, with trenches. So if you see an unbraced trench, you know, you can kind of order some, but you can't shut down a job. We don't have that authority. Okay. Okay. Great. Eric, so if we can't speak about Mills Creek and you can't shut down operations, so when re, you respond to violations or accidents or even fatalities, what are the penalties that are usually handed down to uh, regulated entities? Like, is it just money? Is it money or is it higher than that? Like something bigger? So we, we issue citations um, and there's, there's different type of citations. And so um, first of all, our, our inspections, they're tiered inspections. So we respond to imminent danger uh, requests. Uh, if there's a fatality or catastrophe, catastrophe, um, we do an inspection. Then if there's complaints and referrals, you know, complain about um, hazards or violations, potential violations, uh, we respond to those depending on the severity and and, and complicated. And then we have programmed inspections, which is just kind of going down a list, um, a random list that we developed. So that's kind of how we prioritize inspections. Now, we just issue citations. They can either be um, serious citations, other than serious, repeat violations, willful or criminal citations. And those um, carry different different monetary values. So a serious citation or a other than serious citation can be as much as, what is it? It just got inflated to 14,500 bucks for a serious citation. A willful or repeat citation can carry the value of $145,000 maximum penalty. Um, Now, those penalties can be reduced based off the size of the company, good faith effort, uh, numerous things that we don't need to get into that. But so, yeah, it's a monetary fine. And your OSHA-approved state plans, like we have Cal OSHA here, if you guys deem that it's not enough can you guys overthrow cal osha's so that's interesting so can work with state you, agencies. yeah that's a big one yeah like we go by cal osha here because we're in california if right. something were to happen can you guys step in and be like oh that's not a severe enough you need to up the punishment a little bit uh yes and no uh not, not directly so state osha Federal OSHA, it's just who actually does the inspection. So Cal OSHA, you know, you have your own, you know, Cal OSHA runs the program. We, uh, Federal OSHA monitors it. So basically we give, the federal government gives uh, Cal OSHA a certain amount of money to operate their program. It's like a percentage, right? We monitor it. So if for some reason we find out that they're not using the right standards or they're not enforcing stuff correct, we can challenge them and, and we work with them to get their program up to up to code, so to speak. But yeah, Cal OSHA actually does the inspection. So 
speaking about the example we had, um, the, the Mill Creek one, Kentucky is a state plan state. So Kentucky OSHA conducted the inspection. Federal OSHA ended up assisting them. So there's there's some partnership that where you can you know share resources and and, and knowledge. But um, yeah, they're 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 different in the state plan. And it's funny you bring up California because it's the same standard for state plan versus federal for the most part. Okay, there's always exceptions, right? And, and diving is one of them. So there's four states that have their own diving standard. It's California, Washington, Oregon, and Michigan. And a lot of it is just nuances as far as numbering of, you know, instead of 1910 something, it's you know, they have a different code. Uh, except for California, they they got some interesting diving diving standards that you know we're kind of even working with them for, but. Essentially, it's the same thing. Long story short. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I, I was actually on a job where we had Calosha and Fedosha. I don't know if they were doing a training for something or whatever, but it, it scared the hell out of the foreman. But uh, so they both were on the job site. They were at Port Wainimi Navy Base. We were uh, removing a section of a of, of of a deck, you know, and uh, it was part of this weird, you know, landing crane thing that we were taking apart. So we were moving that. So we put an all stop because the OSHA guys wanted to talk with everybody. So there, they picked out a certain number of you know. Uh, crewmates and they pulled them aside and they were asking them questions and stuff. So the foreman, he told us, Hey, you guys don't have to talk to them without, you know, you have to, you can ask for your union representation first. So he was really quick to point that out, but yeah, we, we didn't ask call our VA or nothing, you know, we all talked to them and it was just kind of just basic questions. It wasn't nothing crazy. Well, l- listen to this, just to, to <clears throat> blow your audience, you know, when they hear this. So, Say you're in California, right? Say you're getting something out of a stuck prop, you know, a rope you know, got tied up. You're, say you're diving from the shore. Cal OSHA inspe- inspects that. If you're diving from a barge, that's an uninspected vessel, just a regular barge. That's going to be Fed OSHA. They're doing the same job. Now, if they're diving from an inspected vessel, it's going to be Coast Guard jurisdiction. All doing the same job. Kind of ridiculous, and that's frustrating mm-hmm. for for the divers out there. But um, so it, that part can get confusing too. So that's funny. So that's yeah. probably why we had both. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we do that a lot. Like sometimes we're like, oh, I, I don't know who had it. Happened in Mill Creek. We weren't sure if it was federal or state because we have, if it's floating, it's going to be federal. If we're on U.S. navigable waters, it's going to be federal uh, jurisdiction. So we work with them a lot. Like, hey, is it yours, mine? And so oh, that's crazy. But yeah, it's good to know there's cooperation there. Yeah. This is Bobby DeLise of the New Orleans-based maritime law firm DeLise & Hall. For over 40 years, DeLise & Hall has represented professional divers working offshore, in inland waters, or anywhere across the globe. This is what I know. All divers and their families should develop a relationship with an experienced diving attorney before an emergency occurs so that if that emergency does occur, the diver's attorney is there to assist them in their time of need. Consider me and my partners, Alton Hall and Jeanette DeLise, as your bailout bottle. Pray that you will never need to engage us, but should an emergency occur, we're standing by to assist you and your family. Here's something else I know. 
Diving contractors, dive gear manufacturers, third parties, and their insurance companies have the money to have their attorneys on call. Why shouldn't the diver and his loved ones also have an attorney in their gear bag before they leave home? Want to learn how Delise and Hall will be there should you need us? Give us a call at 1-800-DIVER-55 or call me on my cell at 504-460-6200. That's 1-800-DIVER-55 and 504-460-6200. Visit us at our website, www.divelawyer.com or the Delise and Hall Facebook page. This is Bobby Delise signing off. We're Delise and Hall, the diver's attorneys. And remember, not all sharks swim in the sea. Thanks and dive safe. All right, so let's get into this uh, Delta P task force here. What are the goals of this Delta P task force? Well, uh, Eric, you want me to? Yeah, go for it. I feel like we need to play the uh, A-team theme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the things, the first things that we, first thing we needed to do was to establish what our mission was. You put a task force together. Why? What, what are the takeaways? What's the purpose? So um, the, the first bullet point with that was to educate clients and end users on who should perform their underwater work at, at you know, at their facilities. That was one um, propose operational recommendations or best industry practices for performing underwater inspections, maintenance, and repairs at the facilities. And then to propose uh, what actions in, in case of uh, facility operators, surveys, and revisions if needed should be taken by operators to ensure that blueprints of the facilities, you know, accurately note all intakes and outfalls. Those were our kind of our, our, our primary mission was the education of clients, propose operational recommendations for best practices, and, uh, and then also propose actions for facility operators, taking into account contractor, facility operator, um, and, and just to kind of raise the level of awareness from a comprehensive standpoint. So that that's why, uh, you know, that that's our mission, but obviously we know the reason for why the task force was put together. Um, and that was, you know, the five fatalities that happened within the 25 month period. Um, and, and so this task force, just so that you know, our main charge, our tier one, our, our tier one focus was to deal with what was right in front of us. And that's the five fatalities at power generating facilities. So the task force's charge is to come up with a set of deliverables to be able to address that. Then after that, we are going to look at other uh, areas that involve DP differential delta P hazards outside of power generating facilities. You know, whether it's sea chests, whether it's working on offshore structures. I mean, there's probably 16, in excess of 16 different 
environments and tasks that a contractor could be asked to perform that involve differential uh, pressure hazards. And so I like how we're starting with the power generating stations because that's yes. a finite number that you can hit that you know that exists and you can hit those and get that done, you know. And that. and and the other thing too is is that when you look at delta p, delta p comes in a lot of different while it's the same thing, it comes in different shapes and sizes. So you have the intakes and outfalls and known delta p hazards. Then you have things like clogged drains, mm -hmm. which in itself isn't a Delta P hazard, a, a listed Delta P hazard um, real time. It, it, it's different than going into, uh, into a power generating facility where you know a particular uh, intake is, has not been locked out. So now you're going to utilize umbilical management. You're going to maybe use side scan sonars. You're going to exercise acute domain awareness for where that diver is to keep them out of the capture zone in the line of fire. When you start looking at something like a clogged drain, well, you know that that's completely different task that requires uh, thorough engineering and barriers and different ways to isolate that diver from what will become a capture zone as you attempt to unclog that drain. So, I mean, these are all things that we we knew we needed to focus in on from a power generating facility standpoint because that's why we we all came together anyway so address what's in front of us and then we can segue to other areas in which we may have a problem um and and that could be offshore structures or um, ship's husbandry type things keeping divers away from sea chests and things like that. But it, they, we, we couldn't take the whole issue of Delta P on at once. It wouldn't address, have address, specifically address the problem that was in front of us. And that was the power generating facilities. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, the case I was going to talk about briefly, and I won't, I won't go into too much details because it sounds, I'm sure it's very familiar to you. It was a, 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 somebody I knew over in France, working in France, working on a, uh, a, for a major, you know, the major French power generator, exactly the same thing, client that was basically decided to wash their hands of, of what happened on their work site. Lad went in on a, on a dam and actually created his own incident almost because he had a, a pretty large uh, hole. He decided they decided to start shuttering it up. And as he shuttered it up, obviously increased the, <laughs> increased the differential pressure, got sucked into it, uh, trapped down there for sort of nearly uh, 50 minutes, um, went into a coma and event, the young lad of about 21 eventually, eventually died, you know, tragic. Um, but they're having real trouble. Um, I think the, the contractor subsequently went bust, so they were sort of absolved of blame almost. Uh, and they're having extreme trouble trying to get compensation for the family from the the client, if you like, because there, you know there's very little accountability from you know from their standpoint. So I, I'm sure it's the kind of thing you guys come across all the time. But yeah, it's exactly the same thing over here. It's it's uh, that's wow, going Chris. off to them first. Hats off to you. Wow, that's, that's like that's cutting the limb that you're tied off to. Yeah, yeah it's just. Yeah, yeah. Know. You know, as you're but, that, but that's education. That was a new a new diver. This is exactly what Phil was talking about. You know, responsibility goes all the way down. You know, the 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 client completely oblivious to what was going on on their work site. We've got a diving supervisor and a contractor who sent 
a you know a pretty much brand new diver into that situation uneducated uh, and a diver you know and anybody's done any diving you just wouldn't put yourself in that situation but you you would be the you that, that comes from experience and, and the strength and the resolve to say you know i tell you what i'm not i'm not doing that that's ridiculous you know but first week on a job or whatever it was i don't know what you know he was, he was pretty new you, you do as you're told didn't you you were naive to those things perhaps um so as that is phil said it's education all the way through the chain you know there's no no excuses from top to bottom i don't think i, I think even the folks that on the task force you know we've got a lot of subject matter experts in their own areas but who's on I the think task force the, the folks on the task the force uh, no what was that who's on the task force real quick let's just uh oh yeah okay. uh let's, let's see kind of give, give them a shout out real fast deal detailed list so yeah um we have folks from the institute of nuclear power uh power i mean i can give you names but i thought it might be uh, make more sense just to give you who they're affiliated mm -hmm. with. Okay. Um, so, uh, consort, so we have contractors that do this as bread and butter work, consort engineers, Dryden Diving, JF Brennan, um, obviously uh, Eric on behalf of OSHA. Um, we have Hudson engineers there, and that is Mark Klein. He's basically our SME for side scan sonar and ROV specific to power generating facilities. Um, American Electric Power is on as another end user. Uh, obviously myself, uh, Electric Power Research Institute, a um, couple of uh, members there. Um, and I mentioned already a couple of members from the Institute of Nuclear Power. Uh, American Electric Power, a few there, uh, Electric Power Research, and, and, and of course, lastly, the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So we have a pretty comprehensive group, and the, and the beauty of this group is, is that no one's trying to, uh, everyone just wants to contribute towards the overall good. No one's trying to drive the bus. We've got a chairman and, and a, a vice co-chair and, and myself uh, just to try and organize things, but we all take an active hand in it. Case in point, this our last meeting here um, last week, you know, Eric just went ahead and just took the wheels of the bus and helped us completely knock out a checklist which we're going to be issuing here to industry in, in a couple of weeks. Now, this checklist is one of the, if not the main, but one of the main deliverables that the uh, task force is going to be pushing out. And uh, it's pretty comprehensive. It has obviously a background and a purpose, but this is a Delta P diving checklist for contractors. This is going to be the first one. It's going to look at planning um, and a subsection in that planning is going to look at a mitigation plan, emergency response plan, um, umbilical management plan. And then there's a pre-dive section that looks at all of the things that need to be conducted um, from a pre-dive standpoint, very detailed. Um, then the conduct of the dive, what does that need to look like? Very detailed. And then a post-dive piece along with uh, relevant terminology because we don't always expect 
um, folks in different parts of the country or some of these facility operators to understand what, what do these guys mean by, well, case in point, define differential pressure, all right? Well, we've got a definition for that. Control, what, is, what do you mean when you say control, all right? Well, we, we have a definition for that. Okay, capture zone, what is that? So all of these terms that we're looking at, domain awareness, barrier, capture zone, fish the diver, if you're in the lay community, you wouldn't know exactly what that meant. Uh, go, no, go, JHA, just in time, sonar imaging, situational awareness, telltales, three-way communication, umbilical management. All of these things are incredibly relevant to this checklist and specific to um, you know, Delta P hazards and a power generating facility. And so we're gonna be pushing this out and then a companion document will go out in March uh, to facility operators. So it'll be the same type of Delta P diving checklist, but it'll be one designed specific to facility operators. A great deal of the same information, they will transfer over each of them, a lot of similarities, but maybe some things that are specific to a facility and an operator that they need to look like. Um, you know, case in point, surveys and and uh, and blueprints and things along those lines, or internal measures taken um, within the facility from a lockout tagout standpoint, and all of that. So, so it sounds like this task force definitely has some teeth, you know, with the, with, with the organizations that you mentioned there. So, you know, you guys are serious about getting something done. Um, checklist, phenomenal. Great, great way to get started. Um, some, now, I just want to bring the example of a confined space. So um, back then, before any kind of confined space operations, you know, people were dying left and right. Right. Right, Eric. I mean, it was like a it was kind of like an epidemic type of thing, like what we're going through with Delta P. So this is not unheard of to solve problems, you know, by checklists and awareness and education, because we've made some great inroads uh, with confined space, you know, topside confined space uh, procedures and protocols. So I, I honestly see this going away in power plants, the Delta P. Um, great step, great, great way to accomplish this in a you know, these checklists, it might not sound like much, but it's going to save some lives. I, I tell you what, it 100% will save some lives. A, a checklist is a reminder. It's a tool to make you aware. I mean, I, I sit down and, and, and look, I'll, I'll just use this example. This is one of the other takeaways that came from the task force. Somebody says, okay, where do I need to uh, look at in terms of potential Delta B hazards in diving? I could probably give you six things, but as a task force, when we sat down and looked at it, we came out and there are about 16 different scenarios and things that are there. And that's pretty eye-opening. It lets you realize that, whoa, whoa, this is not just in power generating facilities. It, it's, it's everywhere. It's tunnels, it's drains, it's spillways, water towers, reservoirs, dams, pipes, um, cofferdam dewatering, you know, there's uh, stop logs, weirds, bulkheads, ship intakes, sea chests, thrusters, propel. I mean, it's everywhere. Right. And, and so, that's the thing, once you identify a job as being like a Delta P job or a confined space job, you activate another set of procedures. 
And, and I think that that's going to be the charge of the task force as a whole once we get past this tier one focus of the power generating facilities. We're going to look at some of these other areas um, and, and just, you know, real quick, whatever comes out of this task force is going to be in the consensus standards because, you know, what the task, what's done, uh, it's unfortunate, but what the task force being created because of these fatalities, one of the other takeaways will be the creation of a new subsection on diving at power generating facilities, um, operational guidelines for diving at power generating facilities. That's going to be a new subsection and everything that gets pushed out of this task force will be incorporated into that subsection. So. Amazing. No, like I said, it's, 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 freaking amazing comforting to know that that you know something's being done about it because uh I mean, we just lost too many damn divers of this thing you know and uh it's definitely got to stop and and we're taking active steps to stop it so so thank you guys thank you eric thank you phil for uh for spearheading this uh task force for for you know helping and getting it going um so well thanks to you for getting the word out this way we, we like this thanks. so we appreciate yeah. it, you, know, you and chris and I'd like to think too that, you know, as, as we progress through this and we start making a difference um, and there are other things that come out of the task force that, uh, you know, we can come back on and, and kind of share that with um, the listeners of the podcast. It, it seems like there's a real appetite for folks to know, you know, what, what's taken place, what developments, what mitigations are, are, are being uh, put into place to kind of, again, stem the tide of this. And that checklist too, I told you about the relevant technology, but we also have um, about 12 reference documents that are there. So the hope is, is that folks will want to take a deeper dive in looking at the list of these reference documents there, which really are, uh, go deep into this. I mean, anything from the, the dangers of Delta P, you know, the video and the consensus standards to uh, what IMCA's pushed out as well as the Canadian, uh, the CDAC. We've got a lot of different reference documents out there on the Delta HSC P. for HSC, <laughs> yep, yep. So like I said, yeah. about 12 different reference documents are there. Um, and this checklist is meant to designed in a way that hopefully people will want to stick their head into some of these reference documents. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to a gentleman, uh, Francis Hermans, that's put out a, a good Delta P uh, paper that- uh, It's in there. Yeah. Yep. He's actually, we actually have uh, two from him that oh, are nice. in there. Yeah, he's yeah. real passionate about it because he, you know, lost a friend due to Delta P as well. So, you know, it's amazing. Uh, what you would do for your friends, even in death. So, big yeah. So he pushed out survey and analysis of fatal accidents in commercial diving sector in 2016, and then he also pushed one out in March of 2018, risks and prevention, uh, Delta P and diving risks and prevention. So that was on our radar, and it's included. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so far, this has been really great. 
Um, I, was just gonna ju- I was just going to jump in because yeah, Phil, yeah, go, Phil uh, go ahead, Chris. Sorry, sorry. Go, 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 no, go, 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 go. Sorry, no, no, no. I'm being rude. <laughs> no, Chris, you're not being. I was because Phil kind of beat me to it, but I was going to say it's great. Honest. It's great that he. Uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that it's, it's. You know, it's. It's. it's you know, it's talking. Oh, I think hopefully on behalf of the divers listening, you know, the boys and girls listening, uh, that it's, it's great to have people in positions of authority to come come along and talk about these things because they're slightly contentious issues. You know, so it takes a certain amount of bravery to step forward and talk about these things and um you know i was going to say that very thing it'd be great to have you back i'm sure wouldn't it to to follow up on some of these issues and um you know on behalf of everyone it's really appreciated that you you come forward and and be so forthright about these things so yeah thank you sorry amanda no it's okay (laughs) no i was just gonna ask eric if he had any uh kind of dive a quick dive story or or oh crap i almost died story or anything you know that's funny try to end on a on a funny note, and uh, yeah, and it's a little I nice. Say, note. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. <laughs> a lot of well, pressure. Not, not really. And uh, so, I uh, I didn't dive that many years, um, or do any big hard hat diving. I mean, uh, big hair. Or even on like a construction site or something, you know, yeah. your top side. <laughs> no, but a uh, porta potty or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I I just remember, you know, diving in. Uh, all these divers, I'm sure, have this experience. You know, we're, we're diving, and I got to break ice to get, you know, get through to to the job down underwater. And, you know, every diver probably has this at some point and just going, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> yeah. it's um, every day. It's every day, Eric. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're swimming through mock and you know i i got some staph infection the next day and i'm just like oh, what the heck am i doing you know so i just i have, I have so much respect for 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 divers out there because they're doing that every day and then in uh luckily and unlucky i didn't get to make a full career out of it but um anyway uh, it just you look back and it, it, and it makes you laugh but um my my general thought is, you know, just most days I think I just wish I'd worked that little bit harder at school. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, funny, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been great. Um, but other than that, is is there anything else you guys want to touch on? You know, before we go ahead and wrap this up, real quick. Um, I I probably would want to say that I think you know what we talked about in terms of the hazards of Delta P. Um, and looking at what have been kind of some of the largest numbers of diving fatalities over the course of, uh, I won't even use five years, I'll say 10 years. I'm going to say it's um, underwater ships husbandry on scuba and Delta P and, and uh, power generating facilities those have been the ones that have been on our radar over the course of the, the, the past 10 years. Um, and uh, there are issues that we're working in tandem, no one more than the other. So even though I'm on the task force and, and you know we're all working to address this issue, I'm having to do the same uh, you know, in another uh, area with respect to underwater ships husbandry and folks, you know, doing what is industry recognized best safe practices in that operation. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess outside of that, I wanted to uh, thank you guys for helping uh, get up, 
helping us get the word out. Um, and we, I plan from an ABCI standpoint to lean on you to help push out information to folks out in the field that might not necessarily read Underwater Magazine or go to our website or get our informational or safety notices. Um, so thank you for that and keep up the good work. Come on, Phil. Thanks a lot, Eric, for uh, for being on the Bomb Doors Dive Shack. Hopefully, this is not the uh, last time that we have you on. I know Phil definitely not not yours, uh, and uh, it's it's just great to be able to uh, talk with uh, with Eric as well to make sure that he's not a ghost somewhere in an office, you know, yeah. pencil whipping stuff or giving fines up. He's a real person, a real diver, and uh, he's got our back. So that's uh, yeah, very that's like comforting. Definitely like to do this again. We can talk about, you know, public safety divers or, you know, other topics, whatever mm-hmm. you guys want to talk oh, about. Oh, perfect. So, Very awesome. um, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it, everyone. All right. Thank you. Well, this is a, this has been a great episode and uh, hopefully you guys can tune in on the uh, next one. Awesome guys. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. All right. And uh, again, thanks for the opportunity. All right. See you later. Take Phil. care, everyone. Yeah. Thanks. And yeah, Eric, Phil, I think you both spoke with a lot of passion and eloquence. And it's clearly, you know, I'm sure that'll give a lot of comfort to people, uh, to, to boys and girls diving at home. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, uh, Armando. Thanks, Johnny. Right on. <laughs> All right, guys. See you on the next one. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at BottomDwellersDS. Our Facebook is BottomDwellersDiveShack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening, keep it safe, keep it salty. This is LB Diver, out.